Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Are you sniggering already? I haven't said it. <laughs> Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. This week's guest is stand-up comedian and podcaster James Acaster, who joined us from his home in London to talk about his musical experiences. Uh, this is a wonderful conversation, and I think you'd be hard-pushed to find a more passionate music lover, eh, Ben? Yeah, I mean, it's clear that James is a man who's totally obsessed about music and has been from a very early age, eh? You know, we know, we're all aware that once you kind of dive in and make a commitment to music, um, listening and playing and everything else that that entails, that it would take something pretty significant to divert you off that path. And it mm. was very clear from the conversation with James that he was a million miles from that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really good to hear so much about his early bands and that sort of exploring creative ideas because he seems to me to have been like to have had a consistently committed approach to whatever creative project he's working on he has and he um, he spoke with a lot of passion about about music at an early age and coming to it a very early age um, and then you know so he was come from from Kettering and from the scene there and scene in Northampton which he spoke with about passionately didn't they a real huge commitment to it um from from that from the from the get-go really yeah yeah uh, um i particularly liked how he described his time in the wow scenario which was this last band as the most valuable experience of his life and and how that collaboration uh with his friend graham is uh, that's still ongoing it is and it's um you know it's a it's sort of the, their journey to complete their album really hints at something of a life's work, doesn't it? And there's something, I've, I found something very noble and, and quite magnificent about their kind of pursuit of their endeavour to finish that record. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to hear how it turns out, eh? Uh, it sounds like it will be, yeah, at the very least interesting. <laughs> and the, yeah. culmin the culmination of a, you know, a really um, dedicated piece of work and, um, an enduring friendship between those two individuals yeah 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 it's really exciting the the, the he, james also talked about his uh the project um luna dot raise the bee pigeon um which I, I i actually wanted to get into that a little bit more than we than we did in the interview um i think you know just the conversation went elsewhere but we'll put some links to the um to the luna dot stuff um in the show notes and yeah, I sort of highly recommend going and checking that out because as a sort of creative project, as an idea, uh, it links really nicely to the conversation we had and and just sort of fills in a few more gaps for 13-year-old James and hanging on to his demos and then going back and revisiting that stuff. His musical roots seem to be you know, hugely important to him, even though he may have sort of found humour in that stuff previously. It still seems to be really significant for him. I love the idea that he that he'd actually managed to hold on to these demos of all his all his various friends' bands because I can't find any of the demos that I've made over the last thirty <laughs> years. I think so. It's a little bit jealous about that, but yeah. But then then to to go back and delve into that again and to kind of revisit those songs and kind of reimagine that reimagine them and involve the people, some of the people that you know the vocalists who have been involved in those bands. 
and then also the fact that you know the there's a commitment to kind of support the local scene so the project is supporting some of the local rehearsal spaces that they would have used when when they were in the bands which is which is fantastic isn't it yeah it's brilliant it is really great it was a re- it was a real treat to get to speak to someone in james's position about something that was so formative for him and so uh, and 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 that that early stages of um being a being a creative person and doing the thing that he absolutely really wanted to do um up until the point where it didn't make sense anymore and i loved the way he spoke about that stuff yeah i mean i think there's a, a definite way in which james um sort of carries himself which is hugely impressive for kind of indicative of that is that at one point in the conversation he said talking about you know going back to the wow scenario mm. um and the the sort of starting point for them he kind of said what what is the point in doing any of this if you're not trying to do something amazing and he seems to have quietly carried that forth in pretty much everything he's done yeah yeah it's, yeah that's amazing um I do want to take an opportunity to thank Daisy, James's uh, assistant, for setting up the interview um, with uh, such good grace. And uh, uh, so thank you to, to Daisy uh, for helping us put this together. Um, there is some conversation in the show about one of the most important musical influences in my life, Cardiacs. It was great to discover that James is also a fan. Uh, we are recording this introduction on the day that the news broke of the passing of Tim Smith, the singer and driving force behind Cardiacs. Tim was a uniquely brilliant, virtuoso musician and a wonderful songwriter. I've loved the band since I saw them on the tube and Cardiacs are the band that I've seen most times live uh, and it was never less than glorious. So we'd like to respectfully dedicate this episode of the podcast to the leader of the Starry Skies, Tim Smith. Okay, Steve, thanks for that. Um, shall we go over to our interview with the marvellous James Acaster on episode 10 of Songs from a Padded Envelope? My name is James Acaster. I'm a stand-up comedian. And the song you'll be hearing at the end of today's show is... The Day I Remembered to Breathe by Freeline Whip, a band I was in when I was 18 years old and listened to a lot of At The Driving. Well, I was going to, that's, that's what I've written down here. How much <laughs> yeah. At The Driving were you listening to at the time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely there, isn't it? Yeah. Did you ever get to see them? Did you ever get to see At The Driving? No, it's one of those things where I got into them, you know, when the last album came out uh well what was the last album at the time relationship of command came out in 2000 i think so i got into them when most people got into them and then they split up pretty quickly after that and i was how old was i like uh i guess i was 15 or something so like i only started going to gigs for the first time that year and i went to about three of them i think three gigs but like uh and it took me a while to really loved that album as much as i i bought it just because i was buying anything that um everyone was going nuts for but it was a bit too grown up for me like i i I bought it and didn't get it for a while and i was like i don't know why everyone's going on about this it's not it's not cool like limp biscuit and then uh (laughs) and then and then like gradually over the years being like this is incredible it's one of my favorite albums and by the time i was in that band uh Freeline Whip with my friends. Um, all of us had, you know, 
it had been like three or four years since that album had come out and all of us had just been obsessed with it for years and we're just talking about how incredible this band were and how gutted we were that they'd split up and because you know i think everyone did this where you kind of you get into at the drive-in with that album you get gutted that they're split up so you go back to all their previous stuff and it's good but the people who used to kid themselves and go, don't you know what? I think in Casino Out's actually the best at the driving album. It's like, <laughs> you are high off your mind. Like you, you are just, just saying that. So that it's like, also you're not kidding. We know that you weren't into in Casino Out when it came out. So don't try and play that card. Like you were into them forever. Um, and then, you know, you try and console yourself with Sparta and Mars Volta at the time. Um, but yeah, that, I think we just wanted to hear more about. There's a lot of bands, I guess, at my. It was a college, a sixth form college, uh, that sounded like at the drive in. I was doing a music course, a B Tech music course. And definitely, there's a lot of kids who we were all uh, still on that buzz. And how much stuff, how much recording did you do with Three Line Whip, James? Just like two demos. Um, and like that demo that I've sent over that we're going to play at the end of the show is um it's the first demo i ever did as well and it was a uh, we, we so we're doing this b-tech course it was a music practice course it was called which is basically form a band and do gigs with the band was the whole course it was no real useful qualifications or anything uh and you just went there to meet people and uh get in bands with other musicians and there was a part of the course was called music industry and a guy called Stefan would teach us about music industry. He was this uh, Irish guy, professional musician. He, had, he uh, famously, uh, well, famous in our college anyway, appeared in the London wedding episode of Friends uh, as, <laughs> as one, of the, one of the band members. And uh, he would sometimes come into college and he'd be wearing his um, Friends uh, crew hoodie, Carson crew hoodie. <laughs> uh, and um, he had a studio and everyone knew that you had a studio and stuff. Uh, so like we wanted to record a demo. So we thought, well, you know, we don't really trust a lot of the wheelers and dealers that we've met around Northampton, but this guy teaches us music industry. So he's not going to rip us off. He ripped us off so bad. Oh, no. Like he, like he just charged us way too much. Didn't do a good job. I mean, we, we played it to all our friends who like liked our band, all the people who were in other bands who played with us at gigs and they were all gutted. We, we were so excited to play this to them because we were just so ecstatic that we'd done a, a demo. And then we played it to all our friends and they were almost upset at how bad it sounded, how like uh, they couldn't hear the songs as nicely as they're used to hearing them live. And we didn't realise it at the time. Now I listen to it, it's harsh as fuck. The kind of way everything's recorded is really high-end and a bit much. But um, at the time, I mean, you know, three days or whatever it was, in the recording studio, recording three songs, we absolutely, I was just so excited. And I just felt like I'm in a proper band now. And I loved going into the the booth to record my drum, uh, my drum parts and then going out and listening to the other people recording their parts and then, you know, winding each other up and whatever young people in bands do. Cause you think that's what you're meant to do as well is be dicks to each other. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You just reminded me of something that uh, that first time in the studio experience. We interviewed um, Stefan Molino from uh, Les Negres Verts, um, mm. who are a brilliant French band. And we went over to Paris to interview him for a, for a thing that Ben and I made. 
and uh, he took because they were all buskers originally, mm. and that uh, Negres Vert would play in the flea market in Paris, yeah. uh, and uh, they got they kind of got picked up by this producer and took taken into this the biggest found themselves their first recording experience in the biggest studio in Paris. And they're all these kind of urchins. <laughs> they were just really excited with their with their dodgy instruments. Yeah, they were and, street kids, weren't they? So they? Yeah, yeah. And like from had come from circuses and different different places. And how they couldn't like get over the talk back and how much huh. fun that could be had <laughs> with, yeah. with the talk back and taking the yeah, piss out yeah. of each other. And the, the yeah. and the, yeah, it took them ages to record because of how much fun they were having with that. Yeah. This is such a giddy experience and you yeah, and also it was all I had thought about since playing the drums was recording. Like I, I wasn't that excited about play, playing live, and um, I wasn't that excited about practicing a lot of the time. But did it because I had to in order to get better. Um, I liked writing the songs and I liked recording. So like, first time in the studio was just like I didn't want to leave. Did you prep much for it? Was there much kind of? You, did you know what to expect? No, I don't think we did really because like we. We had, um, we, you know, we'd done a lot of gigs and we practiced the songs a lot. So we knew the songs inside out at the time because we just, that's all we were doing. Um, but we didn't really think about what we want to do in the studio, what sound we want to go for, um, both overall and as individuals. Like, you know, I didn't know what drum sound I wanted. So, like, we hadn't really thought of anything and uh, it was just a real... It's a massive learning experience for the times I went into the studio after that. Uh, I'm just thinking, okay, maybe plan a bit before you go in. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really complex song, isn't it? It moves through loads of different stages that we were all pretty competent musicians by that point. No, we were kind of learning that, that that's us learning how to do things. So like I, I had got like, by this point I was really obsessed with the drums and I was going to be a drummer. And that was what like my plan was. Um, uh, you know, I've been in like other bands in secondary school and I remember when I was like 17, I think it's 17 or 16. No, you're 17. And, and I, I was, it. I just decided to leave school and not do my second year of sick form and that I was going to go to college and do this BTEC course. And I s- met some guys in the pub who were in a band called forever until october which you can probably imagine is like an emo band yeah so i met these guys and they were like you know for ketrin they were cool like they, they were they had tony and guy haircuts tight clothes like they really <laughs> stood out from everybody else in the pub and i was like who are these guys like you know i'm really enjoying as well like you know you've had years of school where like if anyone dressed like that they would get bullied and then meeting people like that who were comfortable and confident in their own skin and all that, and meeting them and being like, this is great. This is what I want to be. I've been sick of like being in school and having all this shit from all the other kids and like having to fall in line and be like everybody else. And these guys don't give a shit. And this is great. And like, I went to see their band and just blew my mind because they were like really competent musicians. It's really amazing. And I went to hang out with them one day. I went to their house and they were all in different rooms practicing and that was all they were doing all day individually. And I was like, well, I came out to hang out with you. And they went, well, you can go and, you know, Ross was the drummer. You can go and hang out with him if you want to do some drum practice. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's how we're hanging out. It's like, and like, and I came away from that day going, shit, like I'm not going to be a musician for a living if I don't 
take it seriously like these guys are doing and they're really practicing if i want to be as good as that because they were better than any local band i'd seen up until that mm. point i thought i've got to be that good so i was practicing all the time and i had to i used to play open-handed when i started learning the drums i was playing open-handed left-handed and uh even though i was right-handed and had a right-handed kit and so like the summer before i went to this start this college course i had to teach myself to play right-handed which was like starting all over like i literally like a month before going to college couldn't play the drums because i had to start from scratch again and i was really panicking about it and when, when we started the course and i met these guys who i'm in a band who i'm in a band with on this demo i met them on day one and i could just about scrape together a drum beat but it wasn't what i used to be able to do um and they were kind of at the same stage as me, really. They'd also been playing for a while, but never really taken it that seriously. Had just started to take it seriously. And so we were all four of us kind of at that stage of going, okay, well, let's like actually try and get good at this. And part of it was discovering that you can play in other time signatures besides 4-4. Four, four. And we didn't understand anything really about that uh, properly. We, we I still don't understand what the bottom number means. I understand what the top number means to a point. And so that's all we did really. It was like me and my friend Graham, who was the person, we would write the songs together in that band. And um, we just had a lot of fun, especially with this song of going like, okay, let's do this bit in seven. And, you know, this, and, and try and do, you know. And so that was all it was really, was us going, we'll try and, and we would, you know, me and him would struggle for the whole day trying to play whatever new time signature we we were teaching ourselves we weren't learning that at college we were just learning it together because you know i think i'd heard i heard one of the forever until october guys talk about it so i was like right we're gonna do this now <laughs> and um and then we'd try and teach our friends tom and simon the song and i remember the first time we brought one of those songs to them that was like that i think it was like a you know the verse was in like six or whatever and then the chorus was in four four and that was all it was was that change and the other two were like, I think I think that they, they they said to us, look, you guys are being complicated for the sake of it now. <laughs> we, we don't want to do this. And we were like, look, let's just learn it. And once we've learned it, if you want to never do it again, we'll never do it again. And then they learned it. And then like, they were like, we love it. Because <laughs> like, yeah, you were fucking being lazy. Just, you just didn't want to do it. And we're telling us like, this is over complicated for the sake of it. No, you can't do it yet. And you're throwing a sulk. So wait, wait, you do it, see how you feel about it. And they're like, oh, I love it. So stuff like this was not, yeah, we weren't competent musicians, but we were like ambitious and we were, we were, we wanted to, we didn't want to sound like the other bands uh, who were playing with. I wanted to be like that forever until October band. I wanted to be the best band on the bill uh, who made everyone else look like they were just local bands and we were going to be something. Um, but, you know, we were doing a lot of gigs in Northampton where the standard was actually a lot higher than it was in Kettering. And uh, there was a lot of bands on every bill who you know, did go on to have record deals, which we didn't. Uh, so there's a lot of very good bands. So we were more competing with other good bands who were, who were on the bill at that point. And did you at that at that point, James? Did you kind of set your heart on being a musician, on having a, a life as a musician? Yeah, yeah. It was like I, I'd all the way through school, I had wanted to be um, a whole host of things at the same time that were all creative. I wanted to be a drummer, a cartoonist, an actor. You know, uh, I wanted to write books and stories and stuff. So like, I wanted to do everything in school, and I didn't settle on one thing. And like uh, for my GCSEs 
I, I chose to do, well, I originally chose art, music and drama. And then the deputy head pulled me out of a lesson in year nine and said to me, I've got to drop one of them and do double science, uh, which I still kind of, kind of don't like him for. And during lockdown, I, I was asked by his son to record him a happy birthday message because he's 70 this year, which I did because he did, to be fair to him, give me extra math tuition after school and help me get an A on GCSE maths when I was the worst in the class. But I still don't fully forgive him for <laughs> pulling me out. I, I chose not to do drama and actually that really fucking helped me out now with what I'm doing. But um, I, um, yeah, uh, when I left school in sixth form, it was because I decided I had that one year of sixth form to think about what I actually wanted to do with my life. And I decided I didn't want to go to university because there was nothing that I could learn at university that would help me. I just wanted to do something creative. Um, and I was most into drums at that point. The band I had been in had stopped. Uh, I think as sick form started and I really missed playing in the band. I was just like, I just want to be in the band. And so I found out about this course that was like, well, great. I can, you know, if I start that then, um, and, and yeah, and meeting those guys and seeing that band, that local band who I really loved really made me go, I'm going to throw everything into this. So when we, when we were recording this demo, I, that wasn't, I didn't have any plan B. It was just, I'm just going to be a drummer and I'm going to be in this band. And yeah, when that band split up, it's like, I'm going to be in this next band. <laughs> but like, yeah, that was all I wanted to do. When you'd done the three line whip demo, did you, start sending it out to people and what did you do with it yeah i can't i've been thinking about this because i can't actually remember i know i know that we sold it at gigs definitely i don't think we sent it out to record labels because i don't think we felt ready at that point i think we we wanted to get better it, it, it was more that we wanted to sell something at gigs um i think we tried to get it played on local radio stations i think we even might have got it played on something it was either this one or, no, I don't know. Maybe we got it played on. I feel like now we got it played on something, but it might have been like a college station or something like that. I had to ask the other guys. Maybe it's like a false memory that I've just implanted in myself. So I'm trying to think about what we did with it. But uh, we definitely, I mean, we made a cardboard sleeve. We learned how to make cardboard sleeves. Um, so like we do like a DIY, you know, we learned how to do the template, fold it up and stick it together. Uh, and sold them at gigs and the front cover was a uh it looked like a look just just a guy and then if you looked closer it was all of our it was different features from our different faces put together to make it <laughs> to make a new guy it looked, it looked a weird creepy guy and then you realized it was like he uh he had like an eyebrow from a mustache and stuff like that but um but uh yeah i think we just i think we just sold them at gigs i think were there many gigs in, in Kettering? You said you were playing in Northampton, but were there gigs in Kettering as well? Yeah, there were, but mainly ones that we put on. So it was like, at that point, before us, uh, before our kind of um, wave of bands, there was, because Kettering had a really good music scene for a while, and before us there was a lot of new metal bands. Um, Defenestration were the most popular one. They were the ones who they, they got in Kerrang, uh, the, the lead singer. Uh, she was in a, I don't know if you remember the Pandora comic strips in Kerrang years ago. Was very, <laughs> and, and they would always have a musician in them. And she was in what, yeah, you know, one week she was in Pandora. We're like, fuck it out. <laughs> so we so excited that someone from Catherine was in Pandora. I couldn't believe it. Um, 
but they were like a new metal band and there was like a but also there was a lot of um sludge core bands like you know Mage and Speedhorn were in the town over in Corby and there's a band called Scourge who were in uh, Ketrin as well who were like even you know even more kind of like blues rocky sludge uh than Speedhorn were and there was like a local jam night every Tuesday um that was like a at its core was a blues jam night and rocky and stuff like that and um then some like emo-y type bands started to rise up as well but there was loads more live gigs before we started gigging and when, when we started doing gigs there wasn't as many so we had to put on a lot of them and, and there's like it was just whatever venue would let us do it each time so it kept on changing uh, of what venues were allowing live music or accepting it and um we just put on as many bands as we could and as many like we my friend ben foot used to do um comics and stuff and homemade comics we'd make sure he was there selling comics at some of them or selling artwork and we're trying to get as many just creative local people involved as possible but i'd say uh after shortly after like our band split up and a few others the whole kind of catering scene kind of disappeared a bit uh which was a shame and even northampton you know over the years has like evaporated a bit um you know artists like slow tie now have come out of northampton but not really from mm. the live scene he wasn't really doing stuff he was going to watch stuff live but wasn't performing um so yeah like i think temples are now like the biggest band to, to have come out of Catherine, and uh i'm glad that they're still going and that there's because you know those guys were in bands when i was in local bands and they're all in different groups and um it's it was good that someone uh managed to make it on the or global scene actually they've done loads of stuff yeah yeah was it was it a supportive kind of group of people the scene that you were in at the time were you kind of helping each other out and you know, saying you're putting lots putting lots of shows on I, I guess that sort of fosters a bit of a supportive network yeah yes and no it was like so i think the captain one was the captain scene felt supportive and like everyone was um backing each other up and it was it was really great actually um i've said it in a lot of like interviews before and on stage and stuff like that that northamptonshire and Ketrin maybe in particular can be uh quite a cynical place and quite a uh negative have a negative vibe to it and people can get quite negative and pessimistic but growing up the young people in Ketrin weren't like that. And still now they're not like that. They're the, they're the ones who kind of are optimistic and want to make the town better. And so definitely there was that feel to doing live music in Ketrin. In Northampton, I felt like everyone was a bit more competitive and a bit more critical of each other and shitty. And like there was a time where like a, uh, a local fanzine came out called Music for Squares. And it was like a, a square fans, but it's a properly professionally printed fanzine like it looked like mm. a proper it was nice and uh they'd got funding for it and everything and then i did a big launch night and all this and i remember going to the launch and being really excited that this fanzine was out and like you know reading reading it over and over and all the different local bands were, oh, this is so cool mm. all these like little bands that are starting up in northampton and ketrin and uh, like they've done a magazine about it this is great and then I was talking to the other local bands and they were very critical of it and like, well, no, they're focusing on this kind of stuff and there's actually a lot cooler stuff going on over there. And, and, and all this kind of like, really like, uh, yeah, it's this kind of music and it's a bit obvious really and they should be doing this kind of stuff. 
And so many people were complaining about the fanzine. And I thought it wasn't perfect. But I was like, well, I'm not just going to complain about it like everybody else. This is like, seems pretty, um, just like it's not, not going to help. So I contacted them and was like, oh, I'd like to do a, um, yeah, I'd like to write an article for you or something like that. And, and then the article I chose to do at the time was basically to get a bunch of people from different bands together to talk about the Northampton music scene because there were a lot of people who were actually very critical of other bands. And I, I don't like the way the vibe was mm. and that, that the way that people were a bit like, oh, our music band, I, oh, I don't like those emo bands. This, we're, we're a proper true rock band or like, <laughs> oh, those, band, those bands are cheating with synths and all this. And I'm like being like, this is, what's going on? Like you should all be excited at all the different music that's here. So I invited loads of different people from different bands to get together and do like a big forum and all, all basically chip in and say what they thought about the music scene and they could be as honest as they like to each other and all this. And um, they paired me up with an, with another guy who was just a journalist for the, for the fanzine and wasn't a musician. And he contacted me pre-interview and he said, um, so what kind of questions are we going to ask them? I thought we might ask them stuff like, this was his suggestion. I thought we might ask them stuff like, so when are you going to move to London then? Because, that's all that local bands really want to do is move to London. I was like, oh, so you're a prick as well. Who doesn't like support? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, there's all these, these are Northampton bands that are just starting out. They're just starting to write songs and be exciting and good. And you're like, you should stay in Northampton forever. And it's like, well, maybe they don't want to. And maybe there's more opportunities in London, the capital, one of the biggest capital cities in the world, you fucking dickhead. But like, he was like, did it, yeah. So I was like, okay, this is going to be rubbish. And then we did the, we the day of the of the big interview getting everyone there no none of them showed up or and, and a lot of them were people who had really run their mouths off there was one guy who i knew really well who was so critical of all the other local bands and i mm. said well just turn up and then you can say your piece we'll put it in print and, and you know if you think music if you think this this fanzine is stupid because it paints out northampton to be this brilliant music scene where you think it's not a brilliant music scene i'm now giving you the opportunity to say in print or in the magazine that you don't and what your problems with it. And he didn't show up. And I remember being like, right, well then, because I, I was so frustrated at the time with anyone who was trying to chop things down at the root before it's even grown. And then like, wouldn't stand behind, it wouldn't do anything themselves, you know? And it, and it really frustrated me. Um, and I wasn't one of those people who wanted to get out of Kettering or move to London. I, I am in London now because I had to for comedy. Um, but at the time, I was just wanting to make ever you know this local scene better, and I did want it to be supportive. And uh, I think it is a shame that that kind of stuff happened because like temples are made up of they were all in different bands, and then they got together, and that's such a common story with such a lot mm. of bands that you see who are, who have made it, where that they were all in different ones. They were the most committed or hardworking people in those individual bands, and they got together. There were so many opportunities for that in Northampton, and I just feel like not enough of them. Uh, really just like uh were encouraging each other enough you know there were some bands who were but um i think more could have and it was a it was a shame that all the bands in that fanzine very few of them kind of went on to to do much really it, it feels like we should uh, take you back to the sort of beginning of your musical journey james so can you can you actually kind of pinpoint the moment that your relationship with music actually began 
Yeah, uh, I was at a, I was like, I think I was seven. I might have been six. I'm not, I'm never completely sure. But I was at a party. Um, a, f- a family friend was having their birthday and it was a daytime barbecue. So my family all went to this barbecue. And it was like, there's a lot of people there, all from my parents' church. And they were playing a, just a kind of standard, you know, best album in the world ever mix of like you know just all these popular songs i just never really i I don't know nothing had ever registered with me until that and i remember sitting there at the party and there wasn't many other kids there my age so i was just kind of sat there (laughs) uh chilling out on the sofa and everyone was dancing to these songs and every song that came on i just thought was incredible like and and it was like and made me feel the way I'd never felt before. Like I think like I remember High Ho Silver Lining was on there, uh, Centerfold, um, Rocking All Over the World, um, like and I, I remember like every time I'd hear another song, just like just getting that feeling that again that I couldn't put into words, I couldn't describe it. It was it was just an overwhelmingly positive and exciting feeling, and wanting to just listen to all those songs again immediately i wanted that album i remember immediately asking my parents i think i even asked the couple whose house it was at church like you know as a seven year old or whatever excuse me what was the uh album that you were playing at the party i would really like it like that kind of like probably and and of course like because i and they were like oh, i don't know like because you know no one no one an adult doesn't recommend to another adult you know, a, a compilation album that <laughs> put, put on at a party. They were like, I don't know, we just put on a bunch of stuff that people would like at a party. And I was like, those songs were really good. And like, yeah, songs that everyone knows. And I, I asked my dad, you know, because my dad uh, really loves music. And um, he he didn't like actively, like when he saw that I liked music, he wasn't actively trying to influence or nurture it. Um in a forceful way, but like, you know, he was very open to, if I wanted to talk to him about the bands he liked or, um, he, he would make compilation tapes for, for his friends. And I wanted one of the compilation. I was like, can I have a compilation tape? And he made one for me and it was cool. So they were all kind of like, they all would have a different letter on them. That's how he would like, he would just, you know, instead of giving the cassette a name for his friends, which I guess that might be more my generation would try to come up with a name or, put the person's name in the title and you know the the joseph tape there you go mate. That's, that's you. but like um my dad had just put a different letter of the alphabet on the label and then that would be it so mine was x so he got to x by the time he made my mixtape so i was like obsessed with the x tape it was like my my like you know favorite album at the time and it had teenage kicks on it and it had making plans for nigel on it oh, that's um, good parenting yeah yeah come on like, come on dad yeah he's he's good he's got he's very good taste and um and and i think a lot of them some of them were recorded off the radio so they they cut off before the end (laughs) and stuff and uh yeah i just listened to it all the time uh really loved it um the shoop shoop song by Cher was on there because i requested it that was the only one that was on there because i asked for it he wasn't into that song (laughs) but i was like i'd seen it on it was the first episode of top of the pops i watched and it was number one. It was the first number one uh, that I saw on top of the pops. And I was like, I need this song. It's so funny. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. That was the thing as well, is that all the music I liked at that point, I just thought was funny. So like I found 
the notion of someone rocking all over the world hilarious <laughs> and like and hi-ho silver lining is just a funny song all the flies in someone's pea soup and all that down under talk about a vegemite sandwich and all that and someone and being in the land down under and being in australia was funny to me Shoop Shoop song was funny because they were saying Shoop Shoop all the time. And um, <laughs> Bob Hoskins was in the video that was like number one on top of the pops. And so like it was all just stuff that I had an element of what was funny to it. And I wanted to play the drums because I thought the drums were funny. I don't know why in like again, in my parents' church, there was like a, a rock band and I just was obsessed with the drums with it. And I don't, I don't know if it's because the drummer was a younger guy this guy called Sid and then sometimes a guy called Ruben would play the drums. They were both young guys. And I was like, but I was really drawn to the drums. And I just thought there was something comical about them. I don't know what I thought. And it wasn't the Badum Tish stuff. I didn't know about that. But like, I just thought that drums were funny and asked for drum lessons. And then uh, the Ruben guy, who was the, one of the drummers, uh, started giving me lessons and we got, given the church's old drum kit that they were going to throw away. And so we had this like old kind of Beverly drum kit that was going to, that was on its last legs, but I would learn on that. And um, that was when I, yeah, was properly into music at that point. It was all, and it's all through the church weirdly. Cause like, you know, I, I, actually not weirdly. Cause I think any sort of like, if you go to any um, religious place of worship or whatever, as a kid, you just learn Music is like, uh, you know, you're fast tracked on that route. You kind of, so many professional musicians who their first introduction to music was through the church or um, wherever they went, you know. And like when I was a kid, you know, my dad, you know, told the story before, but like about like, you know, I, I met, uh, there was a family who were friends of my family who were Buddhists. And there was a kid in that, their family who was my age and me and him would sit down and play each other songs from uh i'd sing him a hymn and he'd sing, do a chant for me and we'd go back and forth and you know didn't see anything you know none of it was like competing or it was just like we were just like we both liked music and that's how we that was our experience of music at that point was us like you know listening to those hymns and, and, and chants and stuff so yeah that was like my whole introduction to it was through that and uh like even though i'm not religious as an adult like i definitely value the introduction to certain things that i got through going to church when as a kid and music yeah. definitely absolutely you said you say also in your book <clears throat> perfect sound whatever you talk about um having a basement to practice in which is a that's a nice yeah. nice thing for a drummer uh, and yeah. that the lovely story of your neighbor coming and uh, uh, giving you a box of sticks which is a, a lovely moment i bumped into him in town just before the uh book came out and i saw him walking but i hadn't seen him for like you know, 20 years or whatever and i saw him walking through town and i ran up to him i remembered his name he didn't he didn't remember me um but i was like i got his address off of him so i could send him the book because i wanted to uh and he, he said at the same address as well that on, on the same street that i grew up on but uh yeah i made sure i sent the book over to him because uh it did mean a lot that he turned up and dropped around a load of drumsticks when I thought I was going to get bollocks for playing drums too loud <laughs> that's a, it's such a lovely moment and great that you ha you've you've been able to do that just by you know pure luck bump into him That's yeah lovely. yeah really lovely when when you were practicing in your basement um as a, as a young lad were you uh playing out any particular rock star fantasies while you were playing you said you were playing along to other albums and things did you have any specific kind of because i remember pl learning to play guitar 
playing along to Disintegration by The Cure and absolutely mm-hmm. was going to be the guitarist in the the second guitarist in The Cure at some point. Great. I have given happen, it up. <laughs> yeah, it could still happen. It could, yeah, yeah. No, it couldn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, did you have anything anything similar? <laughs> anything similar? Yeah, I think um, Oasis were probably the main ones at that point. So I was like, uh, so I was seven when I started playing the drums. Um, so I must have been six at that party. But yeah, I was seven when I started playing the drums. And Oasis were the first modern day rock band that I got into. Um, and yeah, I was just really obsessed with um, What's the Story in Morning Glory. And listen to that album all the time. Like looking back, they were a massive formative band for me. And yet that was the only album I loved. Like even Definitely Maybe I didn't get into, I didn't appreciate Definitely Maybe as much until I was older. I had it, I owned it and I owned Be Here Now as well. I didn't buy anything beyond that. But like Be Here Now I found disappointing even at the young age that I was. But I was obsessed with what I saw in Morning Glory. I was obsessed with Alan White's drum fills in Wonderwall and... Um, actually kind of across the album but especially the Wonderwall drum fills that he did and would listen to that a lot and try and play those drum beats Um, I think they were the main people I was thinking of at that point it wasn't until I was 13 that I started getting into a lot more rock bands at that when I was seven through to when I was 13 I was mainly listening to pop music like I I was into the Spice Girls and all stuff like that like just proper whatever was being pushed on young people in you know magazines and whatever was cool at school and oasis were the only ones outside of that where i was like yeah even blur because of the whole you had to do like a blur you had to pick a team so like i think i got into blur before i got into oasis i liked country house again because it was funny and uh and then like at some point i don't even remember how oasis became my band and i was ignoring blur whereas nowadays i'd probably prefer to listen to a blur album well, I definitely would. But like, yeah, as a kid, it was uh, it's mainly just thinking about being Alan White. And also because Oasis had already had a change in drummers, it wasn't out of the question. They were doing <laughs> it. Are, they, are these records that your dad's playing or how, I mean, how do you come to no. the Oasis records? Uh, that's just like what what all the kids my age or the kids older than me really. So that's the thing, I don't really, my dad definitely wasn't listening to any of that stuff. Um, And I don't remember if like, I know that my auntie and uncle bought me some of the Oasis albums on cassette tape. And I don't know if I was already into them by that point or if that was my introduction to them because they would go to like Spain on holiday and stuff and Turkey and they would come back and would have these kind of like, I guess they were kind of like, they looked all authentic, but they weren't. <laughs> or, 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 they were, or they were just cheaper Abroad. anyway whatever it was there would be a bit of a nudge and a wink as they handed us these tapes but uh so i don't remember if they were like we wanted to buy everyone cassette tapes and we just taken a punt on what you would like and then i turned out i loved it and it was them introducing me to them or if i got into them myself but definitely it wasn't via my dad or anything like that I, I think it was it was school or it was that tape that my aunt and uncle gave me where i suddenly was like really obsessed with them and into them I remember watching, it's probably Top of the Pops, because I remember like watching that. I wouldn't miss an episode of that every week. And definitely when it was the Blur versus Oasis battle, I was heavily invested in the Wonderwall, Country House, who's going to be number one. 
and chose Country House as, as, as you know, my allegiance and went and bought that single. So I was definitely into Oasis. Yeah, so it was before the Auntie and Uncle tape because I was definitely into them via that. Well, I've heard of them via that. And then somehow I flipped sides. I don't know when I, you know, hopped the fence. But like uh, at some point I clearly just was like, no, I, I, I definitely... I definitely remember listening to The Great Escape and being disappointed by it. I would still say it's my least favourite Blur album. But, like, so maybe that was it. I just listened to that album and was like, ah, oh, actually, this isn't that good. Maybe I'll go over and see what Oasis did instead and then love What's the Story, Morning Glory so much. And that was definitely one of the first bands that was it was mine and I got into them. There wasn't even many kids at school who were that into them at my school. They were more into E17 and stuff like that. And um, I was one of the only kind of Oasis kids. It's such an important moment. It's like a pivotal moment when you find that first band that's yours, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's just, you know, you're drawing pictures of them all the time and cartoons and whatnot. And uh, I was just obsessed with the listening to the album over and over and over again, knew all the words, knew all the band members' names, which is more than I can say for most of the bands that I know now. Most of my bands that I, you know, bands that I absolutely love now, and I couldn't tell you who the bass player is. But like, but then I was like, Squigsy, Squigsy's the bass player. I just <laughs> know it straight away, all their nicknames and, uh, you know, look at the artwork over and over again and like imagine if I was in the band, what the artwork would be like and, you know, what we'd put on the inlay and all that stuff. Yeah, just really... I was obsessed that they, you know, I remember noticing they had the same logo every time. And like, okay, so if you're in the band, you've got to come up with a logo, which you don't. But I thought at the time you did, because Blur had the same, you know, Blur was written the same way all the time. Oasis was. So just stuff like that. And I was like, you've got to have a logo. Even bands like, yeah, there were lesser indie bands on the Britpop scene at the time, like Space and stuff like that. But they had the same logo. So it's like all these bands were doing that. Um, so yeah, I'm very much is suddenly being immersed in not just the music, but every single element of being in a band. And it was all quite intoxicating, really. Was there a particular song that took you from Oasis into the alternative and punk and metal stuff that you that you gravitated towards? Was there a particular song that did that? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was I'm sure this is a lot of people's story, but it was Smells Like Teen Spirit was the song that took me from that. And uh, it was just, you know, I, I I just it changed completely is how I looked at music. I, I it, suddenly I loved it rather than just even with Oasis. It was this kind of like magazine-y, bubblegum, you know, kind of obsession with it all. Well, I liked it because it felt really cool and and I liked the songs, but um, it wasn't like well, this is my way of life now or anything like that. Uh, it was just like really exciting. It, it, it just felt it felt fashionable and quite cool, like, and all that music. And then discovering Nirvana and having my tastes completely changed. And uh, suddenly all this music was resonating with me on every single level I could possibly imagine. It was really, you know, it hit me in the gut and uh, the heart. And I loved all the melodies in it. I loved the uh, anger in it, but there was beauty in it all as well. I'm a big fan of the Butch Fig production on that album i'm a big defender of it i liked how thick and um, bold it was kurt cobain's voice was incredible like and just that you know i watched it just the other day actually like probably yesterday or day before i watched a youtube reaction video of a millennial listening to team spirit for the first time and he's just it just blows his mind he does he listens to it and he's, and he's just like 
he can't handle how good it is. He's like, this is so. It's like every bit of this is like makes me want to dance. It makes me want to break stuff. It makes it, it's like everything in that song. It's so melodic. The guitar solo. Every still now, every time I hear the guitar solo, it feels like the first time I've heard it. I just I, I think it's just it's got something to it. It might be my favorite solo, even even though it's just the vocal line, which is kind of I love that kind of element to. I, I love the guitar solos that are the vocal line. Uh, and uh, it's something about the way the sound of it, the way it comes in, the way it properly sings the that that, that melody. Um, I just think it's so good. And it's, it's still a song now that when I listen to it, I feel the same as when I first heard it. And that was definitely the stepping stone into listening to all that stuff. And also still, you know, from that phase of my life, 13 to 17, when all I was listening to was what was in Kerrang, what was in what was in Metal Hammer. They're one of the only bands that I still love just as much now as I did back then. All the other bands have fallen, you know, uh, don't, don't like, you know, a lot of the new metal stuff I used to listen to then. But like, you know, there would be Nirvana, uh, you know, Tool, Rage Against the Machine, very few bands system of a down who i would still listen to now and think are good um and nirvana's probably still well they are still my favorite of those groups it's a huge moment isn't it lands in such a big way that song and everything that resonates out from it is still like you say it's still carrying on to this day isn't it yeah and i and i kind of it's one of those things where you feel sorry i completely understand why the band especially kurt cobain didn't like the song um and I don't fault them for not liking it, um, but I feel bad for, especially bad for him, that he never got to experience a song like we did and like I did, because like if he knew how it made people feel, it might have made him feel different about it. But, you know, I completely get, you know, as someone who, like I've obviously, I'm nowhere near as well known as he was. But I've, you know, found uh, encounters with fans, for want of a better word, difficult at times and overwhelming and a bit, uh, and that hasn't made me feel good. So I can only imagine what it was like for him with the level of success and fame his band suddenly got. And he saw his audience change to the very people that he didn't want to come and see his shows and the, the kind of people who... Um, he was almost making the music to lash out against suddenly he liked it and especially that song and so I completely get why he felt like that and I just think uh, so you know there's a lot of tragic things obviously about around the band and around him uh, but one of them uh, it's probably a smaller one but one of them is that uh, he never got to kind of like experience those songs the way that everyone else did and the way that people still are experiencing them as well yeah, and, and Dave Grohl's experience of being involved in that music now being where mm. he is and, and how he's sort of the trajectory that he's gone on with the Foo Fighters and, and he seems such a positive force, you know, in his, in his music, you know, and mm. how, I mean, he didn't write Teen Spirit, but he was there and part of it um, yeah. and managed to navigate his way through it, you know, it would yeah. kind of wonder, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, that that kind of, yeah, he has. I, I guess yeah, he came to the band a bit later, but like mm. you know, that drum fill at the start of Team Spirit was all him, and and yeah, you kind of look at where he is now and the kind of person he is, and 
yeah, you, you kind of go, yeah, with a bit of maturity. Because you, you know, people talk about the twenty seven club, and you're like, that is fucking young. Like that. Like yeah. I, I, when I was when I was growing up, I didn't think it was because I was like younger than that. So I still thought, you know. But now at thirty five, I'm like, God, like this person who I've always thought of as older than me and uh, whatever is now younger than me. And uh, to think about being that age and yeah, he, he things could have gone very differently. If he had if he had made it through, you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a there's a moment in your book where you talk about um, joining three bands uh, at the same at the same time. So Three Line Whip was one of the, was one of the bands. Is that were the three bands going on at the same time? Uh, they overlapped a bit, so it was. Um, uh, but like not exactly the same. So two of them were at the same time at least. So Three Line Whip. Uh, so basically, I. I Three Line Whip before it was Three Line Whip was called the New Hardcore Skiffle Movement. Uh, and that was a different, slightly different lineup. And it was just like short, hardcore punk songs that was kind of in the vein of bands like the Nerve Agents and stuff like that, which I guess are the bands who are inspired by Minor Threat and, and things like that. Um, but it's a bit more like that updated version of it, like the Nerve Agents were. So like, yeah, we were, we were like short, hardcore punk songs. And I had to learn how to play that music as well. I hadn't played that kind of stuff before. And um, and then that developed into Three Line Whip, which is like more post hardcore stuff. And while that was all going on, we had to form a band for college uh, for that course. And there was a singer songwriter called B. She was on the same course as us, and she already had songs. And we didn't want to write because we weren't all on the same course. Only me and Graham were, and the other two people in the band were on a different course. So we couldn't do Three Line Whip for the college course. So we had to join another band and we didn't want to write new songs for that. So anything we wrote, we wanted it to be. So we just were like, we'll go to that. She's a singer songwriter already. We'll just go to her and just join, just be in a band with her. And we'll just play her songs. So um, she had these like folk songs and then we turned them into like folk funk songs because we weren't doing anything funky in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in, in three line whip. So we were like, oh, we'll just like, we'll explore this kind of music so we didn't want to just explore folk music so we're like we'll do funk stuff over some because me and graham he was going to play bass in the band so we're with the rhythm section so we get to dictate that so and then there was someone called amanda was the keyboard player and she played flute as well and then we called ourselves the capri sun quartet because we drank capri suns at lunchtime in the canteen uh and and it's really funny because like um it was the band that we put the least amount of effort into, which we didn't take it seriously. And it was the band that got the most amount of people coming up to us going, this is fucking brilliant. You've got to do something with this. And we were like, no, I, I, I feel <laughs> stupid. Looking back, I feel stupid. Cause like her songs were great. We'd had really fun gigs and, um, you know, I've learned a lot more through stand up of like, you know, meeting the audience halfway, not halfway, but like meeting them somewhere along the way and don't make them come the whole distance to you, which is very much what we were doing. Well, we're very much what we did in the band we did after through the free line whip, which was called the wow, the wow scenario, which was me and my friend Graham. It's my favorite band I've ever been in. I was obsessed with it, but it was us standing as far away from the audience as possible going, you've got to come all the way here to what we're doing. And that was uh, that was a bit trickier, I think. So 
but yeah, the Capricorn Quartet was the same time as Freeline Whip, uh, which overlapped with a new hardcore skiffle movement. And um, weirdly, that was probably my most <laughs> successful band was uh, the Capricorn Quartet, which, uh, yeah, wasn't meant to be a band. You, desc- you describe in your book about forming the WoW scenario as you never having been so passionate or uncompromising in your life. Um, what was it about the prospect of that band that inspired you so much? Um, I'd been in a lot of bands while I'd felt like I'd been in a lot of bands at that point. And um, every band I'd been in, I didn't want to sound like anybody else. Even when I was like 15, I was in my first new metal band and we were clearly like inspired by new metal and stuff. And there's clearly a big part of it, but I still, you know, I made sure that I got this guitarist who was like a Satriani style shredder so that we had like, we, we didn't sound like all the other new metal bands. We had these sudden, you know, Steve Vai solos in the middle of a new metal song. And I wanted to kind of like, always wanted to be different. And I was very obsessed with that because I felt like, I remember when I was a kid buying, Poppin' an Oak, which is the follow-up to the Redneck single, Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> and my dad's telling me it just sounded the same as Cotton Eye Joe, this new song. And I just think it stuck with me. Like, just don't, you can't sound like anyone else. You can't, yeah, you, you, you can't be derivative. So like, um, I, so yeah, I, I was like always trying to be in bands that were different and be obsessed with that. And when I was in Free Line Whip, my friend Graham, who I wrote the songs with, we were both kind of very um it's when you meet someone at that right part of your that right time in your life and you're both just completely on the same page and we were both wanting to be uncompromising uh make something completely original be one of the best bands ever um be one of the most influential bands ever make a classic album and we were like we just didn't see any point in not in not wanting to do those things we didn't think we were definitely gonna do them and definitely gonna achieve it all but we were like what is the point of doing any of this if you're not trying to do something amazing if you're you know loads of people are in these bands and that sound the same as each other and you've got to put so much effort into it just to sound like a mediocre band you have to just put loads of time and effort into it why are we going to spend all that time just to sound like, oh yeah, they sound a bit like the Smiths. And then like that's, and then that's who we are. And we would like, we have to sound different to everyone else. And we were just both so clear minded in that. And we're like, why would we ever not do that? And, you know, very also like very aware of our own mortality. I'd had a car crash um, uh, when I was 18 Mm that had uh fucked me up for about six months i was like uh, looking back i would like you know i probably had like extreme anxiety about death for six months but i didn't know that at the time i just thought i was going mad um but like you know all i thought about was death and i was just thinking yeah how short life is and it just made it even more for me after that you know because shortly after that we formed the wow scenario because it like that was when I was in Freeline Whip, I had that crash and then that split up and we started the WoW scenario after that. And it was just me and Graham as well. Cause it got down to that. Like it got down to no one else was on the same page as us. Um, didn't understand why we wanted to do the things we wanted to do. So like, it was just us. We were like, right here, we, no, we're gonna do something that is like, this is going to change the face of music. It's going to be amazing. 
Have you got any idea what the music you want to make is going to sound like at this point, or is it completely open page for both of you? We wanted to, we were bored of distort, the, the distortion pedal. Mm. So we were bored of that being our ticket to jumping a song up all the time. Because like every band we'd both been in at that point, you'd do the verse clean and the chorus on distortion. And that was pretty much how you'd lift the song up. So we were adamant we're not doing that. Graham was obsessed with the Beach Boys at that point. He'd just got into them and was listening to everything by them. He was listening to all of the CDs that had all the uh, making of the albums on where you can hear Brian Wilson just like, you know, repeatedly starting again and starting again on every single take. Graham would listen to that all the way through. And so he was obsessed with Beach Boys. We both wanted to keep the time signature stuff that we'd done in the previous band. We wanted to keep doing time changes. We wanted songs to be melodic but technical and... um also, we've been this. I'd started listening to the Bad Plus and listening to like you know accessible jazz stuff, and was kind of wanting to explore that a little bit as well. I was trying to learn drum tech, linear drumming, and things like that, and uh, I was wanting to incorporate whatever I learned drum wise into what we were doing. And I think also Graham was really bored of bass lines just being like plodding along root notey stuff and wanted bass lines to be interesting and weird as well but we didn't have a bassist so we had to get a bassist and no one who actually played the bass wanted to do it because all of our friends who played bass were like i don't want to do like these like really complicated bass lines all the time it seems seems unnecessary and so we taught our friend ivan who was uh he worked in the same kitchen we, we both worked in the kitchen at the time uh in Catherine and our this is our friend there who we used to hang out with all the time who, who kind of had the same attitude as us but didn't wasn't doing anything he didn't mm. do anything creative he was just worked in the kitchen and we were like well we'll just teach you the bass from scratch and so graham kind of mechanically like muscle memory just taught him the bass lines which were very complicated it was all like you know sliding down one string with this finger while you slide up two strings with this finger and it was like <laughs> ridiculous kind of and it was but it was like he he basically learned it all just like uh yeah it was just muscle memory this is the process so he couldn't play any other but he couldn't play you smells like teen spirit on the bass <laughs> but he he can play you these this set of songs and the, these bass lines that looked really complicated because he just learned that order of things i mean he he you know, I think he left after like you know a few months, <laughs> but he did he did gigs <laughs> with us, and everyone was like, uh, when, when when he did gigs with us, everyone was like, what the fuck? If Anne can play bass, it's like no, he can't actually. He can play, <laughs> play these songs, and that's it. But you know, before our first gig, we were just before our first gig, we were obsessed with sounding like no one else. We practiced all the time. We wrote, we were writing songs all the time. We got outfits made that had like grey t-shirts with yellow Velcro ties that were stuck to the t-shirts that we could rip off if we wanted to during the set. <laughs> uh, you know, whole uniform. And before our first gig, we thought this is like historical. We were doing it in a van's kitchen, his our first ever gig, and we invited all our friends and families as well, our parents, because we were like, this is this is going to be a big historical moment in music history. This is amazing. <laughs> we're going to do our first ever gig. And um, also we, we had, we'd had singing lessons. I, 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 you know, 
we, we tried to do these Beach Boys harmonies on our first band practice, recorded ourselves doing them, listened back to them. We're doing Sloop John B just to like warm up. They listened back and, and I was like, oh, I, I am tone deaf. Like I, I literally <laughs> am tone deaf. I, 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 like, I, I, didn't, I didn't ever realize it until that point in my life. And then I listened back to the recording and was like, oh, that's, I feel very humiliated and that's bad. And so I was, I was getting singing lessons every week from this uh, Italian lady in Kettering. Uh, and the first lesson I had with her, she said, I can't teach you. I can't. This is impossible. And uh, I said, oh, okay, I'm going to go away. I'm going to practice every day this week. If I come back next week and I haven't improved, you can tell me that's it. But if I have improved, you have to teach me. And she went, okay, fine. And I came back the following week and she was like, okay, well, you've improved a bit, so I'll carry on. And so, you know, she became like a friend of mine. I was, uh, was house-sitting for her after a while. Like she became weirdly for a few years quite a regular fixture in my life. But we, yeah, we've just been like, me and Graham were both having singing lessons from her. So this first gig was like, we'd had singing lessons, we'd been writing these songs and we thought like, here we go, this is going to be huge. And we did the first gig and, you know, full of a room full of people who were kind of uh, predisposed to tell us we're great and encourage us. And they all kind of looked back at us like, oh, <laughs> okay. And we, and then afterwards, it was really, we talked about it a lot, for, like, you know just like what the what is going on like no one got that and then instead of kind of like changing it we just went well that's this who that's who we are then and we were kind of like no one gets us we're not going to be appreciated in our time but we're one of the most important bands ever and so now we're going to keep on just trying it so all we did was keep on trying to be out there and original and doing whatever and you know looking back we didn't have the so we couldn't sing like Graham could sing better than me, but like I, my vocals were so bad that it, it it was a detriment to the songs. So it didn't, didn't work. Also we were both often singing completely different vocal lines. So it was like two lead vocal lines that were doing different melodies over the top of one another all the time. It's really, really hard to listen to and to figure out what's going on there. Um, and I mean, now as an adult, I can look back and go, and what I've learned from stand up as well, because stand up, you can't really do stand up without coming to the audience a bit. And people can cite really weird stand ups who they were successful and they didn't go to the audience, but that's bollocks. They all, like Andy Kaufman, did come to the audience and he gave them an in, and his mm. best stuff was given. Stuart Lee gives them an in. Like all those weird comedians, Maria Bamford, they all go, Here's your access. There is an access point to this, mm. and you will, and you can. There's a language that you can learn within what I'm doing, and and we didn't do that with our band at all. Um, but I loved, I really cherish that time in my life when I was just completely like uncompromising. I'm gonna do exactly what I want to do uh, creatively, even though I wasn't yet skilled enough to do that. It's a slightly dumb question, James, but would you, if you had the opportunity to go back, would you have done anything differently or would you have pursued the same course? Uh, if I could go back to then, I would do the same thing because I, you know, and I'm not one of those people who sees life like that. There's loads of things I do differently in life. I don't get it when some people say, if I who have it all over, I do everything the same. Mm. You idiot. Like there's some <laughs> things that you go, no, that was just 
categorically a mistake and you should have not done that. Um, but in terms of like, definitely the, probably the most valuable experience of, of my life really was being in that band and, and, and doing those songs and, and recording. We recorded an album at the end just for ourselves. We'd already decided we were going to split up. And then we went into the studio for a month and recorded all our, our songs just for us. But we recorded them as professionally as we could, put loads and loads of effort into them as if this was going to be released. And that was one of the best experiences of my life. And I wouldn't do it differently. I, and what's lucky now is that I am able to do it differently because we've got, we recorded that album and we've had it for years. We've never sent it out to anyone. We've never, we haven't really shared it with anyone besides friends who have asked for a copy. Um, but it was just for us. And every now and again, I'd listen to it, especially when comedy was going badly. When I was like, you know, first few years of start, in fact, you know, pretty much most of your career, every now and again, you have a moment where you feel like, oh, actually, this could be it now. I'm probably not going to be a stand-up for much longer because this is going awfully. And it would be nice to listen to that album and be like, oh, no, yeah, that was no one. You know, you loved doing that and no one knew who you were. You weren't making any money out of it. And, it was, and you worked in the kitchen. And actually, it's not about how well your career is going. It's about how fulfilled you are creatively. And it was always nice that that would remind me of that. Um, but I think I remember listening to it once and just being like, a few years ago and listened to it and being like actually these vocals are bad like i can't i think i can't listen to this much more because like my own clumsy galumphing vocals are really putting me off and i mentioned it to graham and he was like yeah that's it's the one thing for me now as well he said, he said he said it's a recent thing but like kind of like the initial like pride and excitement that we did something and the nostalgia was kind of wearing off and now it's like listening to it just from a completely uh objective or point of view going that no i can see what's wrong with it. i can see why people found this difficult but also I, maybe because of years of doing stand-up and having to you know, stand-up's all about for me anyway getting under the hood and fixing things if it goes wrong you know not just going well the audience don't get it they're idiots mm. it's all about going, okay well what what am i not communicating to them and how do i fix this routine and after years of thinking like that all the time, I was able to look at that band and be like, oh, actually, this isn't un unsalvageable. We, 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 can, we can make this better. And so we kind of are doing it differently now. We, 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 we've, in 2018, we went back into the studio again and we, with the same producer who did it, because he's remained a friend of mine, and we used the original recordings and we took off the vocals but kept everything else. And then we got in um a fiddle player a uh saxophonist clarinetist and a cellist and we got them to play our vocal lines instead so like you know just we assigned different instruments different vocal lines and they're all hard. i made this instrumental album out of it and the producer as well now who's like continued to work as a producer and he's he was able to remix it so it sounds like a thousand times better wow and um, we got this instrumental album that's that we love and are really happy with. However, still doesn't feel like a complete album. We still miss some of the vocals. So we're currently uh, we've got one vocalist who we found who we want to record Graham's vocal lines, and we're looking for another one to do my ones at the minute. Um, and we're not going to do all the vocal lines again. You know, we're not going to have it so they're constantly singing over each other all the time. We, we've selected 
But it's like that thing of like being able to look back at it and go, actually, that was really confusing when, it, when we were all singing over each other. But this vocal line is good on its own. So we'll just do that one this time. And like, so we kind of are, it's nice being able to have a cake and eat it in a way and do both things. I was able to have that experience and now I'm able to actually go back and do it again. And again, just for me, like, you know, we, we, we actually will release it this one when it's finished, which could be 20 years time, but like, it's a nice little fun ongoing project that just sentimentally means a lot to me and is really fun to be able to, um, still be able to do it i feel very lucky yeah and it's a purely creative thing isn't it you you like you say able to have your, have your cake and eat it but to revisit the music and there's no external pressures for it to be anything other than what you want it to be as a creative thing which is that's a you, you can luxuriate in that and why not yeah being able to just go oh because it, it is that thing of like you know that whole question of if you could go back would you do it differently and it is this the case of being able to do that and actually with hindsight go because like very rarely in the moment especially when you're a teenager early 20s are you nailing it and uh getting something right especially if you're doing something creative uh you haven't got the experience yet and uh it's so nice to just actually have all that i remember when we, when we recorded that album when we were splitting up a lot of people saying to us that they didn't understand why we were bothering um and that would really frustrate us and now I'm just like, it's one of the most valuable things I've done because it's like, it's just so nice to have something that is, is just, yeah, like you say, purely creative, purely for yourself. It's a project that, and it's something that was, you know, it was a big thing that I had in my head for many years of my life was this album. And it's nice to not have just completely ditched that and let it go and to have the opportunity to make it what we wanted it to be and what we had in our heads at the time, because because actually what we did make, even though it was uncompromising, wasn't what we had in our heads because we weren't, we hadn't learned how to take what we had in our heads and actually put ourselves in the audience's shoes, hear what the audience was hearing and going, that's not what we've got in our heads, actually. Like what we've got in our heads is this melody and you can't hear it because we've done this to it. So this is how we bring it out. And like we, we did actually send Wow Scenario demos before we recorded the album out to loads of, you know, record labels and, um, DJs and Zane Lowe was the only person who got back to us. Uh, and he got back to us on the day via MySpace. And I bet he just said, he said he really liked it, which was very nice of him. Uh, he said, I think you need to focus on bringing out the melodies a little bit more. But then he said, but you didn't ask for my opinion. Uh, so you'd keep doing what you think. He said, keep me in the loop or something, which was encouraging. And you'll never know how encouraging that was. <laughs> yeah. Also, he was. He was completely right. He was just exactly 100% right. His, his criticism of going like, it's just really, he said, I, I like all the freewheeling stuff, but the, you've got these melodies there and they're, and you, you know, we, we need to hear them. And so like, it's funny that now as a 35 year old, I'm finally taking Zane Lowe's advice. <laughs> <laughs> you talk with so much passion and enthusiasm still about that music, I guess, because you're still involved in it and stuff. But when, um, and I've, when I've heard you speak, previously about your music making about playing in bands it's often understandably done through the the, the sort of filter of comedy and and find, finding humor in 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 your music making and your your past yeah. experiences and i i find myself sometimes wondering if that isn't entirely comfortable given the investment that you made in music and the amount of effort that you put in and how much it means to you have you do you wrestle with that at all um 
I think like I think definitely maybe in the early days when I was like when I did my debut show, I talked about the band a bit in that and made fun of them a bit more. And there was probably a part of me then because I wasn't, yeah, you know, I was just learning to do stand up still. I didn't feel a hundred percent as comfortable in stand up as I did when I was in music. And so you'd feel like you're betraying yourself a little bit and you were just trying to get the laugh because you were desperate to get the laugh. But actually you liked at, at that point, I probably had enjoyed being in bands way more than I'd enjoyed being a stand up. Just necessarily, this is not the case now. Stand up is like, even though I've had many struggles with my relationship with stand up and how much I enjoy it. But I can honestly say that when it's going well, it's the thing that I've enjoyed the most. Um, whereas music, uh, it's the reason why I can talk so enthusiastically about it now is because it's a hobby and one that I'm passionate about and that I'm just doing for myself. Uh, and so that's why I can talk about it like that. At the time, I'd probably be passionate talking about it, but I'd be more like how I have to talk about stand up now, which is like, you know, you're thinking about it constantly like a, it's, it's a job as well, you know, as, as, as well as um, a passion. And there are things that, and you're constantly having to do it, which means there are downsides. Whereas with music, I only do it when I feel like it. And so it's only ever upsides. I'm never sitting there going, I don't want to practice this today. Or I don't want to, you know, slog out trying to record something. And th this doesn't feel good. This doesn't mm. feel inspiring today. And I just feel like this is really dead and drab and hating it. I think I maybe felt in my first show, yeah, a bit like oh, I'm making fun of this band that I loved. By the time I did it in, I should have did a show in 2016, it was much more about me thinking the show was about me doubting the path I'd taken in life and uh, questioning, do I actually want to be a stand-up and should I have just done other stuff? Hmm. And so when I was talking about the band in that show, I don't even know if it ended up in the um, final version of the show, but I was definitely doing it for a while and working progresses and even Edinburgh. And I was definitely talking about the band with a lot more kind of fondness then and that felt okay. Just going back to that, the the album, that James. Do you think that you will? Do you think you'll know when it's finished? And is there something comforting about it not being finished? About hang, holding on to it? Will it be too difficult to let go of it? Yeah, it's weird. I, I think I'll know. I mean, I feel at the moment that all it needs is these vocals, and then a and then a remix, and then we're done. But <laughs> who knows? You know, like <laughs> the thing is, is that. We thought that when we did these instrumental versions that that would be it. And generally speaking, it's only if we both agree on something that we we do it. So like I went to Amsterdam with the producer because he lives there to mix the songs when we did them instrumental with the violins and stuff. And I came back and played it to Graham. And I remember as I was listening to it with him thinking, actually, I kind of missed the vocals. And then once it was finished, he said, the positives about it but then he said i feel like we should maybe put the vocals back on it and i was like well i was already thinking that if we both agree on that and it is our it's our project and that's important to me uh then we'll do that and if when we've recorded the vocals we listen to it and it doesn't feel finished i would be surprised because <laughs> i think there's so much still on there's so much already on there and also we've like we've narrowed down the track list as well it was 17 songs and 71 minutes long and we've narrowed it down now to 12 songs. Um, you know, we're, we're being, I'm a lot better now at 
killing babies as the industry term goes and i and i'm just kind of going this is the best thing for the project rather than my ego and so hopefully once we've done the vocals we can listen to it and go okay great this is this is finished there is a, a slightly romantic thing about thinking if this lasted my whole life and you know i released it when i was 70 or whatever and wouldn't that be fun or, and there'd be this huge story behind it I, i'm a big fan of albums with stories behind them so you know but i think this has already got enough of a story behind it. i don't need to be 70 but... <laughs> <laughs> you you yeah. talked about the enduring nature of your friendship with graham how important that is do you do you think that you'll always be creating and making stuff together uh no uh i i, I because I think that he, we've both taken different path, paths in life and I would always be open to doing anything with him. Um, I love him. I, I, I love making stuff with him. Um, but we have chosen different paths in life. I've chosen to do a creative job. Um, he hasn't, he's got a line of work that he really enjoys, that he's really good at and that I feel like for him, this isn't as bigger part of his world anymore he loves music and he and he still loves listening to music but once this is done i'm not sure he would want to do another thing I, i'd always be open to it because i i really love working with him um but yeah i i, I would never speak on his behalf and i would i would imagine that uh i also this kind of feels like enough in a way even though i'd always be open to doing stuff with him i think this feels like this is what we worked towards. This is what we wanted to do and what we talked about all the time. We didn't talk about doing anything else beyond this. We just wanted to make this, uh, what in our eyes was a classic album. And, um, you know, I'm under no illusions. I don't think we're going to release this and it's going to become a classic at all. Uh, I don't, you know, I think we'd even, we'd be incredibly lucky if it became a cult classic. It, it, you know, it, it's just like, it's going to be a very obscure little album that, um people who like my comedy who have uh you know delved a little deeper and also like music that that crossover those people will hear this and i doubt that anyone else beyond that will and even then it might still be a bit too much of a demand and listen for the people who like my stuff so but something that in our eyes feels like the classic we had in mind uh that's the end of the journey i think I'm excited to hear it. I'm a Cardiacs fan, so you know I'm. Oh, I'm, great. Quite, I'm quite up for a challenging listen from time to time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the, the Cardiacs. What's your favourite Cardiacs album? Oh, that's tough. I love Sing to God. I mean, A Little Man in the House is my was my, my first. Favorite. Well, actually, Big Ship because I saw them on the tube uh, when they did their the performance of Tarden Feathered on the tube, and that that changed everything straight down to oh. the lowest off record shop and. Uh, bought yeah. that EP, which is the, what I would run into the house and save if the house was on fire. I would run <laughs> in and get that that piece of vinyl out. Yeah. But so yeah, I, I yeah. It's, but sing to God, there's something about it that's just mm. incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little Man in the House is the one that I've got on vinyl. It was like it's the one I listen to, listen to the most. But yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, good man, good man. Yeah, we we can't go down the cardiac's rabbit hole. Sure, <laughs> no, another no, time, another mate. time, another time. Uh, did you ever get to see them? No, no. There's loads of bands I have. I, I I think like every now and again I have an amazing live music experience, get to see something good. But I'm so lazy when it comes to booking tickets and stuff, and actually me myself sorting out going to a gig. 
Um, so it's only whenever one of my mates gets tickets to something and invites me that I go uh, to anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, well, just going back to the your music making as a as a hobby, mm. do you have any ambitions kind of lurking to return to music making in a in a in a serious way? And I was thinking about the position your position in comedy and whether or not that might uh, sort of compromise the, the any ideas you have for that. Or could you see yourself being in a position like someone like Matt Berry who who's managed to do both? Yeah, well, it's weird because even like someone like Matt Berry, he has managed to do both. But what who you're originally known as and what you originally you know what you do is always gonna you know taint the other one. So like even Matt Berry, who I like his voice and I like his music, um, but I can't get over the fact it's Matt Berry and I'm listening to it. I still can't fully push past that and be like, yeah, but. <laughs> you're <laughs> the guy on dark place and the toast of london but like um so i think that inevitably is going to affect it if you do anything like that and i would i mean it might be a bit more if it's your name and your face on the front and your voice mm. you know i i am doing like i'm doing a music project at the moment um, um, you know, I'm not singing on it. I'm not. I'm just doing drums, and I and essentially kind of producing it and getting other people to do stuff, and then cutting up what they've done on my laptop and rearranging it, and then sending it to the next person, and then they do something and send it back, and then I arrange it into the you know. So like, kind of doing something like that. Um, and the project would be released not under my name because it'd be released under like a, a group name and you know my name would be in the credits but i wouldn't be like this is my serious um step into music now it'd be like this is this project and not me it's like you know mm. so i think that's how i see it it's, you know, it's a collaborative thing and it's not because i couldn't if i sat down to write a song on my own record it on my own and release it on my own, it would be absolute dog shit it'd be, it'd be so bad like matt berry's got quite a beguiling voice and he's uh he's got a really nice like wistful style of playing the way his songs sound i would just sound like someone who yeah hasn't played for ages given it a go for the first time which is what this new thing is kind of centered around because like i hadn't played drums properly you know, for 12 years and my drum kit had been in my parents' house in its drum cases for 12 years. And I wanted to do something because I did a music thing in 2016 um, where me and some friends, so there was like all the bands that I used to play gigs with in Kettering, not the bands I was in, but the bands that were on the same bill as us, they all had demos and I bought the demos and I had favorite songs on those demos, which are still on my iPod today. And I still like them. And I was listening to them one day and thought, like, I love all these songs. No one will ever hear them because these bands don't exist anymore. And just for fun, I wanted to do grunge, like indie grunge versions of those songs. And kind of, I guess it was like the kind of band I wanted to be in when I was starting to be in bands, but I was never good enough to be in. 
I wanted to be in that kind of band and record these songs that my friends were playing. And there were mainly folk songs at the time and acoustic songs, but I wanted to do these indie grunge versions of them. And I got musician friends of mine uh, to come in and and record with me and record these songs. And then I got the original singers to come and sing on them. And we made this album and the money went to um, youth charities in in, a youth charity in Ketrin where uh, we used to practice. Um, and that was called Luna Dot Raids the Bee Pigeon, and it's on Bandcamp, and people can still get it now. And I'm, I, I loved doing it so much. I loved being in the studio. I loved that they weren't my songs. I didn't feel very invested in. You know, I wasn't like precious about them. I was invested, but I wasn't precious. So I was able to just be like, change bits that I didn't feel would work, and and turn it into this indie grunge one, and, and do a guitar solo that followed the vocal line, and and, hmm. and like and do all that stuff again. And I enjoyed that so much that I was like, and it was the first time I'd played drums, uh, you know, in, I guess at the time it was eight years, but that was all I did that day. It was just that little bit of drums. It wasn't my old drum kit. It was just the drums that were in the studio. And and I very much only got each drum beat right once. And then we kept that recording. Um, And I just wanted to do, I, I realized that what I loved about music was, you know, creating something and recording it. And I, and I, I could do music without ever doing gigs ever again. And, and that that was something I could still do now as a comic. And it didn't have to be, you know, we didn't do this big release for that album. We didn't make it a big deal. It was just for fun and just my own satisfaction. And I'm so incredibly proud of that album. Like I, I, as proud of it as I am of anything I've done professionally comedically, and it doesn't need people listening to it and liking it or anything like that. I mean, people have liked it and it's been, that's always a nice surprise. Right? Every now and again, I get an email about it um, via Bandcamp. People can contact and say that they like it. And it's always a nice surprise when someone's like, oh, this is actually good. And, and that's, that's that's really cool. And they get the nostalgia that's in there as well. Um, but after I did that, I was like, I want to do more stuff like it. But the main problem was that, well, I haven't played in years. I can't, you know, anything that I do is going to sound amateurish. And so I decided to make that, make a virtue of that and make that the um, foundation of the project. So, and it's like two weeks before the UK went into lockdown. Not that I knew that at the time, but I went back to my parents' house and I got my old drum kit, which they've been telling me to do for years. Uh, but I uh, was refusing to take it because I didn't have enough room in my flat, but I picked it up loaded it into a car, drove to a studio in London, unpacked it for the first time, didn't tune the kit, um, and then just improvised for a day. And had so I haven't played in 12 years. The kit's not been played in 12 years. I've not tuned it. And I was just being recorded and just improvised it for a day. And then um, the next day... I managed to get one of my favorite drummers to come in and improvise over my improvisations. So I, I'd done, I'm currently doing a music podcast for the BBC called Perfect Sounds. And it's about my favorite albums from 2016, which I believe is the greatest year for music of all time. That's a whole other story. But we've done an episode where it was all about the drums on a particular album, on an album called What Now by John Bapp. And I love the drums on it. And we'd managed to get, Seb Rockford, who's one of my favourite drummers, he's a jazz drummer. He's in bands called Polar Bands, uh, a load of different bands. But like, he's one of my favourite drummers in the world, and we somehow managed to get him as a guest on this podcast to talk about this album that I love. And That's great. It, was very, 
exciting and he was like sat behind a drum kit for the whole episode and playing the you know i'd ask him about a drum beat on the album and he'd just play it for me and i was obviously you know in heaven uh and trying to act as cool as possible but still like delirious with excitement and um but i really got on with him and he was a really nice guy and i and, and at one point like you know the producer kind of dropped me in it and said play a drum beat for seven i was like i haven't played and i played him this drum beat from the wow scenario and he was like saying and he emailed me about it afterwards and said that he really liked the drum beat and that he was saying, I've been thinking about that drum beat a lot and it's really melodic. And it's, I think it's like, it's what I like in drums. And I was like, had to tell him like, well, actually I wrote that band. I wrote that uh, drum beat when I was in the band and all I was listening to was your drums. I'm basically trying to copy you on that drum beat. That whole drum beat is just basically me trying to sound like you as a teenager. Um, and, uh, and then it's kind of like when I was thinking about, yeah, doing this project, I was like, well, it'd be great if I could get Seb to come in and basically play better versions of the bad unpracticed drum beats that I've done on an untrue drum. So he came in, he played the same kit, but he tuned it. So he tuned the whole kit up and then played along to what I'd done. And then me and the producer took both you know, drum lines and grabbed all the bits that we liked from both sessions from my stuff and his stuff and put them together and made songs out of, you know, made songs out of just the drums. And now I'm just sending them to musicians that I've, you know, befriended over the years and they're during their various lockdowns in various different countries. Um, they're just improvising over that, making their own stuff over it, sending it back. And then I mess around with it, send it to the next person. And, that's been a really fun way of, of doing it. And, and again, just, I probably couldn't have done it without stand up because a lot of these musicians I've met because I like their music and, or they like my comedy. And yeah. it's, it's been more of a legit kind of reaching out to someone and go, okay, yeah, I've heard of this guy. So fine, I'll do it. Rather yeah. than kind of going like, I don't even know who's this kid. But to answer your original question, one of the things I definitely think about is uh when i release this how do i release it like do i put my name on it or do i just keep my name off of it completely and because you know the people who are playing on it their names are enough to get it listened to and noticed so do i just not put my name on it at all and then give the album the chance to just be listened to as an album or is my involvement musically small enough that it doesn't matter that it's like a, a thing of like oh and he's playing drums on it that's fun <laughs> oh that's funny you know and, it, and it's part of the story as well so you know uh I, but i have i have thought about will my bit my name being on it essentially cheapen it and make it harder for people to listen to because this comedian's trying to do music you know i think i think maybe not but given given that you you mentioned your perfect sounds podcast and i feel like we have to kind of pull that in a little bit because it's such a vital piece of recording i think you know the whole um it's like it feels like the work of an obsessive mind but i've so enjoyed listening to those episodes and what really struck me is about that you know how you were able to listen so widely and take in such diverse music and it's just, I found it completely inspirational. Oh, know. thanks, man. Um, yeah, it was like, I mean, I found it 
inspire me because it uh, not inspired by my own behavior but like obviously that'd be mad but like <laughs> it, it, it inspired by the amount of music so i think that's the thing is that the amount of amazing music that's still being made today i just have found so inspiring and exciting and encouraging and all sorts of things really i was in a very bad place when i started well not when i started the project i was in an all right place it was 2016 and i was uh it wasn't a project at that point but i was starting to listen to current music again and i was just excited by lemonade and blonde and big albums like that and uh by the end of the year had a playlist of stuff that was like you know i was just been listening to individual songs found individual songs that i liked from the year and i was just excited that oh modern day music is actually good and it's not tr- trite and um uh you know uh, inane and actually it's quite nice to to rediscover that again and reconnect again but then when 2017 was a harder year for me and I wasn't dealing very well mentally and emotionally and all sorts, uh, it was suddenly this very, um, it was a bit of a saving grace with this kind of thing of like going, there are still people doing positive things today. There are still people making good stuff and putting out in the world. And that was, that was uh, really encouraging and um, gave me a lot of strength during those times. And so definitely listen to a wide range of music and like, before doing this project i loved music but didn't listen to as broad a range of it and when you do when you set yourself a project like this you have to um broaden your mind and listen to a broader range of stuff because otherwise if you go to someone uh like after a while once you are i think once i hit like 50 albums that i'd bought from 2016 you kind of go this is too much this is too many albums to have bought for one year maybe uh Although loads of people do that. But at the time, I was like, this is fucking mad. Why have I done 50 albums? Um, but you're kind of in then. You've kind of gone all in mm. and you're doing it. And you can't go around telling people how great 2016 was for music if you just bought indie and hip hop albums and that was it. And so I was like, well, I've got, you know, I've got to broaden this a bit. And there was just genres that I didn't even know existed things people are doing now, like that John Bapp album that I mentioned earlier, changed my life. It was like, I just didn't know people were making music like that, especially nowadays. I just, it really excited me. And like, like, like Lemonade was like that. It made me completely see modern day pop and R&B in a completely different way. Um, John Bapp was like that in the fact that I didn't know that I liked music where people were kind of almost deliberately playing out of time with each other and things sounded like they were lagging and, you know, every mm. instrument sounded like it was playing a different song. I didn't think I, I could enjoy that. And suddenly it was all I wanted to listen to for a while. There's an album called Pop, uh, P-O-P-P, by uh, Oval. And I didn't really like electronic music much until I listened to that album and it opened a door to a whole bunch of other stuff. And those moments have just been so exciting for me um, to suddenly discover that, there is something in every genre that I love. There's not a single genre that doesn't have anything for me. And I believe that for everyone as well. You know, like, you, you, know, you should never really write off an entire genre. I think there is something I like experimental stuff. I like when people are trying to push the limits of the genre they're working within. I like melodic stuff. I like stuff that is accessible, but also innovative at the same time. And there's something like that in every single genre uh, if you can find, you know, just the right combination of things for you. And that's why I love doing the podcast because it allows me to take 
the albums that are my favorites. I only do the albums that I would say qualify as like favorite albums of all time for me. You know, like there was loads of albums from 2016, which I like or even really like that I wouldn't do an episode on because, you know, I'm sending the guest an album in advance that they haven't heard before. They're mm. coming on the podcast and we're talking about the album. There's a big chance they might not like the album and I need to be able to just back it 100% and not, uh, and not, you know, have my own um, passion wobble at any point during the episode. Mm. You know, if at any point I go, oh, I'll give you that one song is bad, actually, then it's it's over. So, like, I, 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 I've chosen albums that I'm completely in love with and so I've just really enjoyed, even when they don't like the album, that it kind of does away with that whole thing of, um, you know, anyone's opinion being right or wrong about music and just being like, this person absolutely hates it. This person absolutely loves it. But by chatting about the album and neither of us are trying to prove our opinion, I'm actually not trying to pr- prove this album is brilliant, actually. I'm just talking about the, the album with them. And so... I like that the podcast enables people to just go, you can just have conversations about music and totally get across what something sounds like. Cause that's all I'm really trying to do hmm. is I want, I want the listener to get an idea of what the album is so that they know if they'd like it or not. And if they do like it, they've discovered a new favorite album. And that's, that's the whole aim of it. So when I have a guest on who doesn't like it, as long as they explain in detail what they don't like about it, it's very useful because often the things people don't like about it are the other things that people love. And when someone goes on and goes, it was just noise all the way through. Someone else might be like, oh, okay, great. I love, I love that. So I'm going to check it out, you know. Uh, I, well, I think, we're, I think we're pretty pretty much there. Uh, we're at the end of our questions. I've really enjoyed talking to you, James. And, and uh, it, it, as much, you know, I just love talking to people who are so passionate about music and music making. And, and I love that, the, the way that you're describing uh, 2016 and diversity and finding things in music and hearing the the same kind of perspective that you had when you picked up that fanzine is like well there's you know there's more to be enjoyed here than the tribalism that's sort of stopping you from enjoying other stuff and seeing that run through your your sort of musical career is it's brilliant to listen to mm. yeah and that, that's what the that's what the, that weird project has kind of like given me over and over again is that it, with a project like that when you choose one year for music and you decide that you're just going to mine it and find as much stuff that you like as possible with every new album that you discover that you love that becomes a favorite, your enthusiasm gets renewed again. So you, mm. you can't you can't believe that you're still finding stuff. Like, you know, there's this album that I can't stop listening to at the moment by a band. Well, they're a Russian band and all their song titles and even their band name is in Russian, written in Russian. So, but it translates as a, a Glint Shake is the band name. But like their 2016 album, I can't stop listening to it at the minute. I discovered it like last week or something. And uh, yeah, it's that thing where you know, I can't believe I'm still finding albums that I love this much. I'm not trying to force myself to love them. I'm still listening to stuff that's coming out now and discovering old classics that I've never heard before. You know, it's just mixed in amongst everything else. But every now and again, when I discover an album from 2016 that I love as much as this current one, it does give you that whole renewed thing of like, I can't believe that there's so much stuff out there every single year that... Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd just I'd never listened to that Katie Day record in a million years I'd never chosen to listen to it it's phenomenal it's absolutely yeah. brilliant yeah I love her so much uh, she, she's currently she's actually the person 
who that music project is currently with that I've been working on. She's um, she, she's it's over in, oh, in Melbourne. How exciting is that? It's great. The, the, <laughs> yeah, it's very very exciting. I, I I interviewed her in Melbourne last year, and we just hung out for the day, and um, it was it was awesome. And um, yeah, I, I being able to do the podcast and introduce someone like her to the listeners um is such a privilege to be like uh yeah i just think her album is that album is so special all of her albums are incredibly special and ones like that and i think there's been a really good response to the zealanada album and uh to the an album by a band called crying like i mean to be honest every single episode we've had feedback from people going i can't stop listening to this album now so that's really great but those three have been pretty you know, lesser known bands who have had this massive response from the listeners of, of loads of people really getting into those albums. And I just, it's an honor to be able to kind of like be able to do that is, uh, so I love it. Well, we're, we're, we're at the end of the, of the show. Thank you again, James, for doing this. We're really grateful for you giving your, your morning up to come and talk, to come and talk to us. Can we just close out with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now, please? Yes. Uh, you're about to hear a demo track that I recorded with my band Free Line Whip when I was 18. The song is called The Day I Remembered to Breathe. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Cheers, guys.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>